0: Tonight, we're honored to have with us Mark Lawrence Bradley. Uh, I first heard about Mark after hearing uh, brilliant reviews of a pre-tour he led a couple of years ago for some of our campaigners and uh, learned that he was authoring a book on the subject of the Battle of Bentonville, which being a Western campaign and one of Sherman's uh, campaigns was of special interest to me, and it tied in nicely with our tour this year. So I was thrilled when he accepted the invitation to come here and speak. Mark has been uh, a student of Bentonville for a very long time. He's a staff writer at uh, Bentonville Battleground, the historic site for the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, he's been a guest lecturer, <laughs> tour leader and speaker for the Blue and Gray Education Society and the Civil War Education Association, a guest lecturer for the North Carolina National Guard and a number of other organizations and he's very much involved in the battlefield preservation at Bentonville. Like I said, he's authored the book on the subject and he's written an article that appeared in Blue and Gray Magazine and several other uh, articles that appeared in Civil War Regiments. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to present to you Mark L. Bradley.
1: Thank you, Rob. Uh, first, want to thank you all for rolling out the red carpet for me. Uh, it's been a real enjoyable two days so far. Uh, I also want to cordially invite all of you to attend the tour next month. Uh, we're going to be going to some places that you wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to go to, places such as Aversboro, Monroe's Crossroads, various sites that uh, were played a pivotal role in the uh, Fort Fisher and Wilmington campaigns. Um, another thing I want to tell you about is uh, that I'm the vice president of the Bat- Bentonville Battleground Historical Association. And uh, I've got the current battle cry, that's our quarterly. And in the middle page, on what we call a roll of honor, there's a familiar name here. Chicago Civil War Roundtable. What we do is we sell square feet of real estate at Bentonville. All we ask is that you plunk down $20 for it. We don't ask you to maintain it, water the ground, mow the lawn, or anything. We just want your money. (laughs) And you folks have been very generous. And on behalf of the Bentonville Battleground Historical Association, I want to thank you for contributing $500 to preservation there. And you guys ought to give yourselves a big round of applause. Now that leads into the subject of my program tonight, the Battle of Bentonville. Now, obviously, Bentonville doesn't ring with the kind of resonance that Gettysburg and Chancellorsville might to some of you, but for the soldiers who were there, it definitely did. What I'd like to do is tell you a little bit about the battle. Just give you some of its vital statistics so you have an idea of the scope of this battle. First off, it was the largest battle that ever occurred on North Carolina soil. It was fought over three days from March 19 through 21, 1865. and involved more than 80,000 Federal and Confederate troops. Fought over 6,000 acres of ground, which is nearly the size of the area in which Gettysburg was fought over. And it was the culminating event of Major General William T. Sherman's 1865 Carolina's campaign. Uh, What I'll do, go ahead and start our slide program here. Now, General Sherman had just completed his march to the sea by occupying Savannah, Georgia on December 21, 1864. And he was looking for the next step. And he had been planning this probably for close to a year. And it was just after the capture of Atlanta that uh, he told General Grant that what he would like to do is march his 60,000-man army through the Carolinas and form a junction with Lieutenant General U.S. Grant's uh, immediate command, the armies of the Potomac and the James, which were besieging Richmond and Petersburg, which were being held by... Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. That was the key to ending the war. Now Grant wanted to take Sherman's troops and ship them by transports, but Sherman wisely saw the strategic advantage of marching through the Carolinas. He could destroy the Confederate infrastructure in the deep south, cut off Lee's route of supplies, and also destroy or damage the morale of those troops in the Army of Northern Virginia from the Carolinas and Georgia. So it was on uh, January 2nd, 1865, that Grant gave Sherman permission to undertake his march. The commanders of Sherman's two armies, he would have been called an Army Group Commander today, were two old veterans of the Army of the Potomac. Familiar names to most of you. The commander of the right wing or Army of the Tennessee. Was Major General Oliver O. Howard, the luckless commander of the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Commanding the left wing or Army of Georgia, and this is the Army that's going to play the key role at Bentonville on March 19, 1865. Commander of the Army of Georgia is Major General Henry W. Slocum, formerly the commander of the 12th Corps in the Army of the Potomac. And then finally, Sherman's Cavalry Commander. I hear a few giggles in the audience. We must have some Kilpatrick admirers in here. Brevet Major General Judson Kilpatrick. One of the members tonight asked me who Kilpatrick had to pay off or threaten or blackmail in order to hold his position as Cavalry Commander. I can't honestly answer that question and I can't tell you why Sherman retained the man in command. The gentleman who I thought I believe is more deserving of that role, Major General James H. Wilson, allegedly was told by Sherman that, yes, I know, Kilpatrick is a hell of a damn fool, but he's just the man I need to lead my cavalry in this operation. For those of you who are going to take the tour next month, you're going to find out just how much of a damn fool Kilpatrick was at Monroe's Crossroads. Sherman began his campaign of the Carolinas on February 1, 1865 by advancing into South Carolina. Opposing his 60,000-man army was 20,000-man Confederate force, mixed bag led by General PGT Beauregard. Now Beauregard believed that the best strategy that he had at this point in the war was to hold Charleston to the east and Augusta to the west try to hold on to as much real estate as he could pending the outcome of the rumored peace negotiations, which turned out to be the Hampton Roads Peace Conference. Unfortunately for Beauregard, the Peace Conference turned out to be a bust. And as a result, instead of concentrating in Sherman's front and perhaps holding him up in the swamps of South Carolina, forcing Sherman to head to the coast to get supplies, Sherman was able to march the two wings of his army straight through the center of the state with almost no opposition. He reached the capital of South Carolina, Columbia on February 17, 1865. The next morning, much of the city lay in ashes. Now in the meantime, Beauregard believed that Sherman's next destination was going to be Charlotte, North Carolina, and he began to concentrate his troops in that direction. However, In the meantime, Sherman shifted his route of march to the east and moved in the opposite direction towards Fayetteville, North Carolina. By now, it was obvious to the Confederacy's General-in-Chief, Robert E. Lee, Beauregard was not up to the task of stopping Sherman. And it was on February 22 that Lee named this man, General Joseph E. Johnston, to that position and directed him to, quote, concentrate all available forces and drive back Sherman. One of the most daunting command assignments given to a Confederate general during the war. Johnston was anything but optimistic of his prospects. He believed that Jefferson Davis had put him in command, not Lee, in order to make him the one who would have to surrender to Sherman, put all the embarrassment on him. In fact, Johnston believed the most the Confederate army could do at this point was to put up a strong showing and maybe obtain fair terms of peace at the bargaining table as a result. However, Johnston went with his usual energy to concentrate his army, which in the words of his cavalry chief, Wade Hampton, could not have been scattered more effectually across the southeast. The Army of Tennessee contingent was moving from Tupelo, Mississippi, where it had fallen back from Nashville after its rout there and its virtual destruction. The second component of Johnston's army, the coastal garrison and artillery troops led by Lieutenant General William J. Hardy were falling back just in front of Sherman's army. The third contingent, the cavalry led by Lieutenant General Wade Hampton which had been fighting delaying and rear guard actions against the federal advance ever since Columbia. And we have an interesting combination of troops Forming Johnston's makeshift army at Bentonville, the Army of Tennessee contingent is going to be led by Lieutenant General A.P. Stewart, old straight. He's going to have just 4,500 officers and men under his command at Bentonville. His three corps, actually corps in name only, are led by three other veteran officers. Stuart's old corps is led by Major General William W. Loring. He commands just 890 men at Bentonville, about the size of an early war regiment. The largest Army of Tennessee Corps is going to be led by Major General Daniel Harvey Hill, North Carolina. He'll have 2,700 troops under his command. Then finally, Major General William W. Bate will have roughly 900 troops, the remnant of Cheatham's corps. And keep in mind, this is the army that numbered between sixty and 70,000 at the opening of the Atlanta campaign just one year before. Now we have the commander of those coastal garrison troops we were talking about. Most of them are inexperienced with the exception of Kershaw's old brigade from the Ar- Army of Northern Virginia. When General Hardy leads these troops out of Charleston on the night of March or February 17, they number 13,000. When he fights his delaying action at Aversboro just one month later, they number just 6,500. Those are not casualties sustained in battle, those are desertions, uh, stragglers, and militia troops recalled by South Carolina Governor Andrew McGrath. Then we have the strongest arm of Johnston's army, unfortunately also the smallest, the 4,000 cavalry commanded by Johnston's most capable subordinate, Lieutenant General Wade Hampton. The largest contingent of his cavalry are the 3,000 troopers from the Army of Tennessee led by Major General Joseph Wheeler, and we have an interesting sort of command situation here. Up until mid-February, Wheeler was the ranking Cavalry Commander in the Confederate service. And when Wade Hampton asked to be transferred to his home state of South Carolina, in late January, he stated that his one condition was he didn't want to serve under Joe Wheeler, just like Nathan Bedford Forrest. So, Jefferson Davis arranged for Hampton to be com- uh, promoted to Lieutenant General. Obviously, this created some tension between Wheeler and Hampton, But fortunately for the Confederates, they overlooked this situation long enough to put up an excellent fight. Finally, last but not least, the Department of North Carolina troops led by General Braxton Bragg. When Johnston's army falls back across North Carolina, just ahead of Sherman's troops, Robert E. Lee places the Department of North Carolina troops under Johnston's command. And they are led by General Braxton Bragg. For obvious reasons, Bragg does not like serving under Johnston, because it was Bragg who in July of 1864 had recommended Johnston's dismissal at the gates of Atlanta and his replacement by General John Bell Hood. Fortunately, Bragg has some veteran troops under his command. Division from the Army of Northern Virginia, the largest division uh, in Johnson, one of the largest divisions in Johnson's Army, numbering about 3,500 veteran troops. In addition to that, he's got the 1,300 officers and boys of the North Carolina Junior Reserves Brigade. Most of the troops are 17 to 18 years old. Their commanders aren't much older. One of the field officers, Major Walter Clark, is only 18 at the time of Bentonville. One of the regimental commanders, Colonel John Hinsdale, is just 22. In the words of North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance, Joe Johnston was forced to rob both the cradle and the grave to uh, to put an army in the field against Sherman at Bentonville. As a matter of fact, there were a few regiments of senior reserves, men who are anywhere from 45 to 60 years old, Which doesn't seem that old to me, but uh, I guess if you've got troops out in the field, that's pushing it a little bit. Now, finally, on March 10, 1865, a little crossroads junction about 20 miles west of Fayetteville, called Monroe's Crossroads. The Confederates finally have their chance to strike the Federals. They hit Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry, which is encamped here. Kilpatrick would have been uh, in a house just off in the background here. His troopers would have been uh, bivouacked in this area. Confederates deployed on this hill and on another position just outside of the picture to your left. Now, Kilpatrick had divided his three brigades of cavalry in order to cut off Wade Hampton's <coughs> retreat into Fayetteville. By doing this, he presented Hampton with an ideal opportunity to defeat him in detail, and he came very close to doing that at Monroe's Crossroads. At dawn on March 10, Hampton struck and succeeded in driving most of the Federals out of the camp. For a, for a while, they actually held it until they were driven off by these veteran troopers who literally saved Kilpatrick's bacon here at Monroe's Crossroads. The Federal infantrymen later dubbed this Kilpatrick's tail Skedaddle because it was said that he'd run off into the swamp, clad only in his shirt, his pants, and his slippers. Now, you'd think that even Kilpatrick would learn his lesson from this surprise attack. but well, we're going to find out at Bentonville that he hasn't. He's still underestimating the Confederate striking power. The Federals nonetheless succeeded in occupying Fayetteville on the morning of March 11. Incidentally, the market house you see here in the background still stands. The old U.S. Arsenal at Fayetteville is destroyed during that time by the first Michigan engineers. That's going to be another stop in our itinerary on this tour next month. You'll see the, uh, the, the remains of, of the old arsenal, the foundations. And that's the Ghost Tower. Represents the towers that the four towers that stood um, there at the old arsenal in 1865. Now, Sherman now planned his uh, the final stage of his march. His destination was Goldsboro. That's where he was going to stop to rest and refit before moving on to Richmond and Petersburg and linking up with Grant. In addition to stopping at Goldsboro, he'd join up with Major General John M. Schofield's forces, roughly 30,000 troops moving inland from Wilmington and New Bern, presenting Sherman with a 90,000-man army. At that point, the game would be up for Johnston. Johnston knew at this point that he had to strike Sherman sometime before he reached his destination, if he hoped to stop him. Now, Sherman would move out in two wings as he had done both on the march to the sea and throughout the Carolinas campaign. The right wing, consisting of the 15th and the 17th Corps, would take direct roads to Goldsboro, while the left wing, under Slocum, would march almost due north towards Raleigh, keeping up the feint and forcing Johnston to guess as to what Sherman's location or what Sherman's destination would be. Now, Johnston, being a strategically adept commander, chose a midway point, Smithfield, to gather his army. And that's where he rallied his Army of Tennessee and Department of North Carolina troops. In the meantime, Hardy's Corps, the 6,500 troops, made a delaying action at a little crossroads known as Smithville, about four miles south of Aversboro, and succeeded in slowing up Slocum's progress for one day. And this is how it appeared to Harper's artist William Wode. This is going to be another stop on our tour. The house you see off to the left is a rather inaccurate rendition of the John C. Smith House, also known as Oak Grove, that served as a hospital for Union and Confederate troops. Now Hardy's small command was supplemented by Wheeler's Cavalry, two divisions, and they were able to slow up Sherman for one day buying Johnston 24 invaluable hours to rally his troops in order to strike Sherman before he reached his destination. And by the way, this is how Oak Grove looks today. You'll be able to go inside and see the house, um, which is uh, still in fairly good condition. It's almost 200 years old. Now, in the meantime... Sherman's tipped his hand. He now sends Slocum's wing due east towards Goldsboro. And it's at that point that his cavalry commander, Wade Hampton, begins sending him messages. Or rather, he sends Hardy messages and Hardy relays on onto Johnston, informing him of what he thinks Sherman's uh, destination is. Hampton makes his headquarters at the Willis Coal House on the night of March 17. This is going to be the scene of the heaviest fighting at Bentonville. And it's there that Johnston sends a dispatch to Hampton asking him where would be the best location to strike a detached wing of Sherman's army. And Hampton being the aggressive commander that he is says right here where I am, two miles south of Bentonville on the Willis Cole Plantation. So it is that at that point on the morning of March 18 when Johnston receives this message he sends his Army of Tennessee and North Carolina troops down to Bentonville, 18 miles to the south. In the meantime, he sends orders to General Hardy, directing him to send his corps to Bentonville as well. And it's at this point that the North Carolina state maps begin to deceive Johnston and mislead him into finding into believing that Hardy's only about 12 miles from Bentonville when he, in fact he's 20 miles away. So, as the Army of Tennessee troops are bivouacking here at Bentonville on the night of March 18, Hardy's troops are still eight miles away. In the meantime, the Federals have marched to within five miles of Bentonville, so they're actually closer to the coal plantation than Hardy's troops are. Johnston himself calls Hampton to his headquarters at Bentonville. It's too late for old Joe to go out on the battlefield and reconnoiter. So he relies on his cavalry commander to devise an attack plan, and Hampton comes up with a beauty. He suggests that Hoke's division deploy astride the Goldsboro Road. So as the Federals Federals march up the Goldsboro Road, they'll run into this blocking force and deploy to drive it out of the way. That's going to take time. In the meantime, the Army of Tennessee troops and Hardy's troops, when they get to the battlefield, will deploy on the left in woods out of sight of the Federals. And at a designated time, they'll make their attack and roll up this marching column of Federal troops before they have a chance to deploy and achieve a tactical success on the same scale as what Stonewall Jackson achieved at Chancellorsville. And that's what the theory is. The question is, can the Confederates get their troops here at Bentonville in time enough to launch their attack before the Federals can deploy? Now, up to this time, Sherman believes that Johnston will try to stop him from reaching Goldsboro. But, late on the afternoon of March 18, his cavalry commander Kilpatrick tells him, you have nothing to worry about. Johnston is falling back on Raleigh. I know that Hardy is moving back towards Smithfield. All you're going to run into is just a division or two of cavalry. Now, Sherman believes that the game is up. The road to Goldsboro is all but open. So on the morning of March 19, he prepares to march to the right wing just a few miles to the south so that he can link up with General Schofield's troops and just before he leaves, he's sitting at the crossroads with General Slocum and 14th Corps Commander, brevet Major General Jeff C. Davis. It's Davis's corps that's going to bear the brunt of the fighting early in the March 19 battle at Bentonville. Davis believes that he's going to run into more than the usual cavalry op- opposition. And he says so to Sherman. And Sherman says, no, Jeff, there's nothing up there but a division of cavalry. Just brush them out of the way. And I'll see you tomorrow morning at Cox's Bridge. That's the bridge that will take the Federals into Goldsboro. Now, Sherman's not going to see Davis the next morning. In fact, he won't see him for another three mornings. And in fact, there are a lot of 14th Corps troops who are never going to reach Cox's Bridge. There's one soldier, Lieutenant John Marshall Branham, who wrote in his diary just the evening before that everything promises for a smooth entry into Goldsboro. That was his last diary entry because within just a few hours, he's going to be lying dead on the field of battle at Bentonville. There's a man near and dear to Rob Girardi's heart, Brigadier General William P. Carlin, who commands the 1st Division in the 14th Corps. He's the advance. His troops move out early around 7 a.m. on the morning of March 19. They hear musketry in the distance. Happens to be the foragers commanded by Major James Taylor Holmes of the 52nd Ohio. Now Holmes is unable to push his way through in order to get those badly needed provisions for his comrades. He writes back asking for help. Runs into General Carlin. He tells Carlin what the situation is. Carlin replies, get your damn bummers out of the way. I'll drive the rebels out with a skirmish line. So what he does, Carlin, deploys his skirmishers, and succeeds in driving back that pesky Confederate cavalry till he hits the coal plantation. And there, all hell breaks loose. He runs into the troops of Hoke's Division, which are dug in here. Now, Carlin sends in first one brigade, then two, and then all three brigades of his division. And still, he's running into Confederates entrenched in his front. And he's beginning to wonder, maybe this is more than cavalry. Then General Slocum rides up to the front. Slocum is impatient. He thinks that there's just that one division of Confederate cavalry, and maybe a battery of artillery in his front. He sends a courier to Sherman, because he's afraid that Sherman might hear some of this musketry and cannon fire, and actually send reinforcements. Perish the thought that Sherman would actually send troops to help him. So he tells Sherman that it's nothing but some cavalry. I've got everything under control. He also directs the other division of the 14th Corps that's traveling with this column, commanded by Brevet Major General James D. Morgan, to go in on the right of Carlin. And then getting impatient, he decides to launch a probing attack on both flanks of this Confederate line. It takes place at noon on March 19. He's hoping he can outflank this line and drive the Confederates out of the way. That's not exactly how the plan works though. The Federals advance through these open woods towards the Army of Tennessee's position. They run into the 42nd Georgia of Stovall's brigade, which was on the line right about here. This is how it appeared to the commander of the 42nd Georgia, Major L.P. Thomas. He said that he waited until the Federals got to within 40 yards of his line to give quote the order so anxiously awaited. A sheet of fire blazed out from the hidden battle line of the 42nd Georgia. We poured volley after volley into them and great gaps were made in their line as brave Federals fell everywhere. Their colors would rise and fall just a few feet from us and many a gallant boy in blue is buried there in those pines who held old glory up for a brief moment. Now it looked grand and glorious for the Georgians we're cutting down the Federals advancing towards them, but it looked far different for the men of the 21st Michigan that were advancing through the open woods and the field in the foreground towards this Confederate position here along the tree line. This is how it appeared to Lieutenant Marcus Bates of Company C, 21st Michigan. Bates wrote, Corporal Mock was the first man in my company to fall shot through the abdomen, a mortal wound from which he died the night following. We passed Corporal Kilmer a moment later, lying on his back, dying. His feet squarely to the front, his smoking musket firmly grasped in his hands. And a few paces farther along, lay a young Confederate soldier about the same age and build, also dying. It has always seemed to me these two fired and fell together. Louis Massacre. One of my oldest and best men was the next to fall dead. My brother, shot through the thigh, made his way to my side to tell me he was shot. I could only tell him to make his way to the hospital as best he could alone. Now, the 21st Michigan was part of Buell's Brigade. And when we think of the Battle of Bentonville as a fairly small battle compared to some of the other scrapes that the Western armies had been in, we have to keep in mind that for the men of Buell's Brigade, that didn't quite apply, because they went into this fight about 680 strong, and when they came out, they numbered fewer than 450. So for them, at least, this was indeed one big battle. Now, this probing attack of Slocum's looks like a bloody failure up to this point. Carlin's troops have been repulsed on all fronts, and sent reeling back to their defensive positions. But it succeeded in accomplishing two things for the Federals. The first is that it enables a Federal soldier who'd been captured by the Confederates and who agreed to serve as a pioneer building bridges and corduroy road for them. It enabled him to escape with the retreating Federal troops and tell his version of the story of what indeed was happening at Bentonville. He told General Slocum that it wasn't just a division of cavalry in his front, But all the troops from Johnston's army, all 45,000 of them. In fact, Johnston had no more than 20,000. But at this point, it'd take a good deal of stretching the truth to convince Slocum that something was in his front that was dangerous. But even so, Slocum still wasn't convinced. It wasn't until a staff officer who had been at the front rode to the back, rode to the rear and informed Slocum of the situation. He said, Well, General, I find Confederate troops deployed across our whole front. It's more than just a division of cavalry. In fact, there's enough of them out there to keep us occupied for the rest of the day. And it's at that point that General Slocum finally shifts over the defensive, at 1.30 p.m. on March 19. What he does is he leaves those two divisions of the, 5th, the 14th Corps at the front to absorb the shock of that initial Confederate attack that could take place at any moment. In the meantime, he deploys the troops of the 20th Corps on a more defensible position about a mile to the rear on the Redick Morris Farm. In the meantime, General Johnson has been deploying his troops, and it's taken him the better part of the morning to get the Army of Tennessee into position as well as Hope's division. And as he put it, the time, well, it's consumed a weary time, as he wrote. Hardy's troops are just coming onto the field when Carlin launches his probing attack. Now, General Bragg, who's commanding Hoke's troops down here on the extreme left, panics. Keep in mind, he's got 5,500 troops lined up along here, commanded by Hoke. The little brigade that attacks him numbers about 800. But Bragg tells Johnston that he's being hit from all parts of his line. He needs reinforcements fast. So, Johnston sends him Major General Lafayette McClaw's division, 4,000 strong, the largest division in Johnston's army. What Bragg does with the division, just as it comes up, well, Hokes just repulsed this attack. So when McClaw's comes up, he's got nothing to do but twiddle his thumbs. Bragg puts McClaw's on the extreme left of the line where they're left for most of the day. In effect, Johnston is going to launch his attack at Bentonville, fighting with one arm tied behind his back. McClaws will be sitting here for most of the afternoon. His troops won't even be committed until the decision's already been made. And they'll only be sent in piecemeal at that. In the meantime, Bragg will hold back Hoke's division when the Confederates launch their grand assault and keep him there for over an hour and 15 minutes, giving the Federals here along Morgan's line invaluable time to dig in and they take advantage of it. They've learned their lesson from the Atlanta campaign. Now finally Johnston is able to launch his attack after all the delays in deploying and fending off these federal probing attacks. At 2 45 p.m. the Army of Tennessee moves out for its last grand assault. They're lined up along the tree line in the background. Troops of the North Carolina Junior Reserves Brigade have front row seats to observe the spectacle. In fact, this is their monument here at Bentonville. They're lined up just across the road looking out towards this open field. The men of Major General Edward C. Walthall's division advance across the field moving from the right to the left of your picture. They number just 240 officers and men at Bentonville a division that numbered probably 10 times that much during the Atlanta campaign. This is how the attack appeared to Colonel Charles Broadfoot, a commander of a junior reserves regiment, and said that their advance looked like a picture and at our distance was truly beautiful. Several officers led the charge on horseback across an open field in full view, with colors flying and a line of battle in such perfect order as to be able to distinguish the several field officers in proper place, and followed by a battery of artillery which dashed at full gallop, wheeled, unlimbered, and opened fire. It was gallantly done, but it was painful to see how close their battle flags were together, regiments being scarcely larger than companies, and the division itself not much larger than a regiment should be. Nevertheless, The Army of Tennessee enjoyed local numerical superiority along this front and they were able to outflank General Carlin's line. Georgia troops from Smith's brigade of the Army of Tennessee on the extreme right of that attacking line advanced across this open field, the same field that the 21st Michigan went across earlier. They said that the Union dead were strewn across the field, their faces had already turned black from exposure to the sun. The Army of Tennessee succeeded in driving these Federals across a swamp. Many of the Federals fell at this point, being shot to pieces. This is how the scene looked to Private Joseph Hoffhines of the 33rd Ohio. Hoffhines said he fell back through the swamp, quote, in full view of our enemies. Here was our greatest peril. Here they poured in one continuous fire of destruction. One man was shot down right by my side. On the other side of me, another poor fellow was shot in the back of the head. The ball come out at his nose and it tore his nose almost entirely off. Every breath he drew, the blood gushed out at his nose. I did not know, but every moment would be my last and put an end to all my fond hopes of ever seeing home and friends again in this world. Needless to say, Carlin's division was finished for the rest of the day. They fell back to the Reddick Morris Farm where the 20th Corps was rallying. And it was this time that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander C. McClurg of Chicago, Illinois, rode to the front. He's the Chief of Staff for General Davis, the 14th Corps commander. He rode up to the front. Saw the commander of the 19th Indiana Battery had just lost three of his guns out here, overrun by the Confederates. And Keeler called out to McClurg, he said, for God's sake, don't go down there. I'm the last man of the command. Everything is gone in front of you. McClurg got to the open field here. This is the Reddick Morris, or rather the coal plantation. The Willis Coal House, Hampton's headquarters, would have stood near the tree line here. The Army of Tennessee would have been advancing across this field parallel with the tree line, moving towards us, carefully avoiding the van that was parked in the left (laughs) foreground there. I'm sorry, folks. I think that's the only anachronism in this slide presentation. Anyway, Lieutenant Colonel McClark said that as he rode to the front, he saw... Masses of men slowly and doggedly falling back along the Goldsboro Road and through the fields and open woods on the left of the road. Many balls were whizzing in every direction, although I was then far from the front line as I had left it only a short time before. The roar of musketry and artillery was now continuous. And then he saw the line of battle of the Army of Tennessee. He said, checking my horse, I saw the rebel regiments in front in full view, Stretching through the fields to the left as far as the eye could reach, advancing rapidly and firing as they came, the onward sweep of the rebel lines was like the waves of the ocean, resistless. And up to this point, the Army of Tennessee was relentless and resistless. They had succeeded in driving off everything that they had run into. They'd driven off Carlin's division and the elements of two other brigades from the 20th Corps and the 2nd Division of the 14th Corps in the process. That left just General James D. Morgan's two forward brigades here to protect the salient. And for the next two and a half hours, Morgan is going to be attacked in his front, his left flank, and from the rear. He doesn't even have an avenue of escape to the south because there's an impassable swamp down there. So his men have no choice but to fight it out or surrender. And this is where the bloodiest fighting of Bentonville and perhaps some of the bloodiest fighting of the war will take place. Confederates of Hoke's Division strike first. They attack along the front and the left flank of Morgan's line. This is a remnant of the earthwork. The reason this looks so carelessly thrown together is, is that this was swamp land back then. The Federals were unable to dig a trench and had to build a parapet by throwing up logs and branches and then sealing it with muddy soil. To give you an idea of the intensity of the fighting along this line, a contingent of North Carolina troops, former coastal artillerymen, strike. And when they come in, they number close to 270 strong. They hit this line just as their comrades to the right and the left of them fall back. And in less than five minutes, Those 270 men are whittled down to about 115, and they're taken out by the senior officer, a second lieutenant, losing close to 60% casualties in just a matter of minutes. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel John Douglas Taylor, is shot off the parapet very near this point and loses his left arm as a result. Now, in addition to that, just as soon as Hoke's troops are repulsed, Army of Tennessee troops move in from the rear and attack. So the Federals are forced to belly flop across the front side of their earthworks and are now defending their position against Confederates to the rear of them. And it's at that point that Brevet Brigadier General William Cogswell's 20th Corps Brigade moves in to plug the gap here. And it's at that point that these troops under Morgan attack to the rear succeed in driving the Army of Tennessee troops across the Goldsboro Road and in the process of this fighting the Federals captured the colors of the 40th North Carolina the 26th Tennessee, the 45th Tennessee and the 54th Virginia. There are also two Medal of Honor winners who result from this little fight and this is what turns out to be the turning point at Bentonville on March 19. Federals are able to stitch together a continuous line from Morgan's salient, south of the road, back to the 20th Corps position here on the Morris Farm, which is being hastily put together. They're being led onto the field by Brevet Major General Alpheus Williams, another army of the Potomac alumnus. And they reached the Morris Farm just in time because the Confederates from Hardy's Corps, Tolliver's division, the troops that weren't sent along with uh, McLaws' division over to the left; these are the troops that were sent into the right to support the Army of Tennessee in their attack. Launch anywhere from three to seven assaults across the open fields of Morris's farm. They're supported by the remnant of Cheatham's Corps, led by Major General William B. Bate, and they attack closer to the Goldsboro Road, off to the right here, right into the face of four federal artillery batteries, 16 guns. Federals fired K shot into them. Still the Confederates come on.
0: What's that white line in the
1: rear? Uh, on the woodcut?
0: Yeah.
1: That's uh, smoke from the Confederate uh, small arms. Incidentally, this is a Harper's Weekly woodcut that was done by William Wode, who witnessed the battle and uh, this was probably Battery M, 1st New York Artillery. This is a present day view, a bit to the right of that battery position. This would have been held by Battery C, 1st Ohio. The Confederates would have advanced from the background across this open field. This is a Confederate's eye view. Now you can't see from this vantage point, but this was sandy soil according to one South Carolina corporal who was in the front rank of the attacking group. When that case shot hit the ground, it started kicking up sand in such quantity that he and his comrades had to close their eyes and advance into the face of it as if this were a cyclone they were advancing against. Final attacks took place at nightfall on March 19. They were witnessed by New York Herald correspondent E.D. Westfall This is how it appeared to Westfall. The rebels, masked for final effort, emerged from the woods just as the sun went down. They came into Mr. Morris's open field silently without that yell, universally accounted part of a rebel charge, and marched steadily on towards the Federals and their batteries. This is the last desperate effort to try to punch a hole in this Federal line and roll up that Federal column going up the Goldsboro Road. They were received with the heaviest musketry the Federals could give them. Good at bravely and came on. Unfortunately for the Confederates, they failed in punching a hole through this Federal line. And it was at 9 o'clock when Johnston called off the attacks, ordered the Confederates back to their jumping off point. So the Federal line at Bentonville had held. In the meantime, the 14th Corps carried its wounded. To the rear, the western edge of the battlefield, which is marked by the John Harper House, and this was their hospital. Over 550 officers and men were treated here on the night of March 19 and the morning of the 20th. The rooms of the Harper House appeared to Colonel uh, William Douglas Hamilton, the 9th Ohio Cavalry, and said that they resembled a slaughterhouse. He said he saw a dozen surgeons in their shirt sleeves cutting off arms and legs, tossing them out of the windows where they lay scattered on the grass. Now, in the meantime, Slocum had sent three couriers to give Sherman a very different message than the first one that he had sent along that morning, informing him that he'd run into Johnston's entire army here at Bentonville and that he would need reinforcements as quickly as possible. So Sherman sent Howard's wing, which had been marching on roads to the south, up the Goldsboro Road from the east while Slocum held his position here to the west of the Confederate line. Now that forced General Johnston to make a decision. Was he going to fall back across Mill Creek up here and retreat to Smithfield or would he hold his ground? Contrary to past behavior, Johnston decided to hold his position here at Bentonville. He bent his line back into a bastion, sort of a giant horseshoe to guard his only route of retreat across Mill Creek. Keep in mind, Johnston only has 20,000 troops at Bentonville. Sherman has more than 60,000. The 15th Corps under Major General John A. Logan, political general, former congressman from Illinois, move into position first, closely followed by the troops of the 17th Corps, led by Major General Frank P. Blair, another political general, a former congressman from Missouri. Again, Harper's Artist Wode, who seemed to be everywhere in this battlefield during the three days fighting, shows the 15th Corps going into position in the skirmish line here at Bentonville. Federals make some tentative probes against this Confederate line and they find the Confederates dug in strongly However, they don't probe the flanks, and that's where Johnston's real weak point is. But they won't find that out until the next day on March 21. Sherman does not want to fight Johnston here at Bentonville. He would be only too happy to let Johnston escape to Smithfield, and that's just what he says. As he writes to General Schofield, Johnston's position is difficult of approach, it's deep in the swamps, and I don't like attacking his parapets. And for those of you who will be on the tour next month, you're gonna have a very good idea of just how strong this Army of Tennessee line looked. In fact, it still looks imposing enough now that you can almost see the men deployed along this line. Here's a close-up showing the log revetments that were used to build this entrenchment. Uh, This is a somewhat later photograph showing the after effects of Hurricane Fran. Now, on the morning of March 21, 1865, much to Sherman's chagrin and disappointment, Johnston's still at Bentonville. Why did Johnston decide to stay here? He failed to crush Slocum's wing on the 19th. Now he's got to face not only Slocum, but Howard's wing as well. So why would he stay here? Well, there are several good reasons. At least they seemed good to Johnston at the time. The first was he wanted to evacuate his wounded to Smithfield, and that would take a few days. The second was he hoped that by remaining here at Bentonville, he might tempt Sherman into a, trying another desperate frontal assault as he had done at Kennesaw Mountain. And there's a third reason. This is very similar to what Lee did in staring down McClellan at Antietam after the bloody fighting on September 17. What Johnston hoped to do in my opinion, was win a moral victory at Bentonville by evacuating his wounded, leaving no one on the field unattended, and then falling back across the Mill Creek Bridge staring Sherman right in the face. Because Johnston is thinking ahead to another move, an eventual concentration with Lee's forces up in Virginia. If Sherman's eventual objective is to link up with Grant, It's the Confederates' interests that they concentrate. So Johnston is hoping that, well, if I can't win a decisive victory here at Bentonville, at least I can win a moral victory. But he's playing a big gamble here. His only route of retreat is across Mill Creek, which you see pictured here. In 1865, this was no little stream, according to a Texas cavalryman. It looked more like a giant swamp which could only be crossed by one wagon bridge and a 400-yard long <coughs> causeway. Had Johnston been forced to retreat precipitately, he would have had to abandon all his field artillery, his wagons, what few ambulances he had, and probably most of his horses and mules. And in short, his army would cease to exist. Unfortunately for Joe Johnston, the last division and Sherman's army to go into position at Bentonville was the division commanded by Major General Joseph A. Maurer, fighting Joe Maurer, the most aggressive general in Sherman's army. Maurer moves in on the extreme right. This is the prime position for an aggressive general of Maurer's temperament. He's less than a mile away from Johnson's only route of retreat at Mill Creek Bridge. Now, as his troops march off to go into position, Maurer says to his commander, General Blair, I suppose, General, after my troops get into uh, position, you'll have no objection to my making a little reconnaissance. And Blair says, none at all. I think Blair knew only too well what Maurer had in mind. This little reconnaissance that Maurer's talking about will consist of both of his brigades at Bentonville, 2,800 men. He'll move out against the left flank of the Confederates, try to punch a hole through this line. Although he doesn't know exactly, in my opinion, he doesn't know exactly what he's facing and what his uh, ultimate results might be, but I know this much. He knew that Sherman didn't want to fight a major battle at Bentonville. And I think by attacking here, he would force Sherman's hand, make him fight a general engagement and crushed Johnston's army. Maurer came very close to doing just that. Facing his 2,800 men are the 1,000 troopers from Butler's division, the Army of Northern Virginia, led by Brigadier General Evander M. Law, who'd been in some hot places before. It was Law who commanded Hood's division at Gettysburg, that led the attacks on Little Round Top on July 2. And then a few months later, it was Hood's division that made the breakthrough at Chickamauga, led again by Evander Law, who was once again replacing a wounded John Bell Hood. But the third time, at Bentonville, Law's on the defensive, and the odds are stacked against him. Now, it takes Maurer roughly an hour and a half to get across the swamp in his front and attack Law. But he soon routs the Confederate cavalry and it looks like Maurer's got his breakthrough. The main line stops here, within just a few hundred yards of Bentonville itself, while the skirmishers from the 64th Illinois overrun Johnston's headquarters itself, sending old Joe and his staff (laughs) flying to the rear. Things look bad for the Confederates right now, but fortunately, while Maurer's division is going into position, General Hampton has had time to warn Johnston of this impen- impending attack. Johnston delegates his favorite subordinate, Lieutenant General Hardy, as the man who's going to scrape together the counter-attacking force that will stop Maurer. And just as Maurer moves into position here just a few hundred yards from Bentonville, Hardy strikes with everything he's got. Hampton himself leads a cavalry contingent that hits the Federals on the right while the 8th Texas Cavalry and the 4th Tennessee Cavalry, led by Hardy himself, hit in the center. The newest recruit for the 8th Texas is General Hardy's only son, 16-year-old Willie Hardy. 250 officers and men of Cummings Georgia Brigade strike just to the right of the 8th Texas, while Joe Wheeler's cavalry from the Army of Tennessee hit on the extreme Confederate right, actually get around the left flank of Maurer's division. They succeed in stalling the attack. It's at this point when a Texas cavalryman named Private William Andrew Fletcher's blood up runs into a few uh, skirmishers from Maurer's division. This is what happened. I was about 50 yards to their front demanding surrender, Fletcher wrote, thinking they were cowed. But two shots from the bunch made me think they were not a surrendering lot. So I got out of the scrape, scared but not hurt. After their two shots, I was satisfied they were on to their job and were reserving their fire, or they would no doubt have emptied my saddle. I have often thought, of all the simple acts of my life, this one had to head the list. (laughs) After this, bullets seemed to make a greater noise than usual. But the Texans had succeeded in stopping Maurer's charge. General Hardy was flushed with triumph as he rode to the rear with General Hampton. He said, well, General, that was Nip and Tuck, and for a time I thought Tuck had it. And it was just moments after that that he saw his only son, Willie, hunched over in his saddle, being held up by a comrade, been mortally wounded in the chest. Keep in mind that at this point General Hardy has to supervise the deployment of the Confederate left flank. He's expecting another federal attack at any moment. So he only has a few minutes or so to spend with his son. He directs that Willie be sent to his stepmother and sister who are staying in Hillsboro. <coughs> then kisses the boy on the forehead and sends him away. He Never sees him again. Willie dies just two days later. March 23, 1865, and he's buried in Hillsborough at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church. By this time, it's apparent to General Johnston that he's done all he can at Bentonville. So on the night of March 21 and the morning of March 22, he evacuates his army. And with the exception of some minor skirmishing, the Battle of Bentonville ends. Now Sherman has exactly what he wants at this point. The road to Goldsboro, pictured here, is now open. So he marches his army in that direction, leaving Johnston to make his escape to Smithfield. Now you have to ask yourself at this point, did Sherman do right at Bentonville by letting Johnston escape? Now as we see it today, he made the right decision. We historians like to muddy up the water a little bit and make things complicated. I like to look at Bentonville as things appeared on the afternoon of March 21, 1865. Now, was Sherman correct in letting Johnston escape when he had a golden opportunity to stop him? In fact, Sherman even admitted in his memoirs that he had made a mistake in not crushing Johnston at Bentonville. After all, Robert E. Lee and roughly 70,000 Confederate troops are still safely entrenched around Richmond and Petersburg. General Grant later wrote in his report that the one thing he feared more than anything else during those days in late March was that he wake up to the report that Lee had escaped to the south and had joined forces with Johnston. Grant feared the possibility that another bloody campaign would ensue that would consume most of the summer, although Grant was convinced that Union victory was at hand. He didn't know how much the cost would be in terms of treasure and human lives. Now, based on that, I believe that Sherman should have finished the job there at Bentonville and ended the war in his theater of operations. However, Sherman had that element that Napoleon deemed essential to any great commander. He was lucky as hell Because just three weeks later, Grant compelled Lee to surrender at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865. He was also, Sherman was also lucky that Johnston was a humane and compassionate man and didn't want to lose any more blood in his army and didn't, and wanted to spare the South any further devastation. So he surrendered his reconstituted Army of Tennessee at the Bennett Place on April 26, 1865. This proved to be the largest troop surrender of the war involving more than 89,000 officers and men. And this effectively ended the war in North Carolina. Now these events, Lee's surrender at Appomattox on April 9, Lincoln's assassination on April 14, and then Johnston's surrender here at the Bennett Place on April 26, buried Bentonville in the history books. If you look in the New York Herald from March 31, Bentonville is front page news. And then three days later, Richmond and Petersburg fall, and it's promptly forgotten. But for the Confederates and the Federals who fought here at Bentonville, it remained, this battle remained firmly entrenched in their memories. There was a lieutenant with the 34th Illinois who fought south of the Goldsboro Road with Morgan's division who stated it as well as it could be stated. He said, we faced Beauregard at Shiloh and Bragg at Stones River. We'd taken part in the terrible assaults at Kennesaw Mountain and Jonesboro. But for desperate fighting on the part of the rebels and a determination to whip them on the part of our own men, we saw nothing like the 19th of March at Bentonville. Thank you. Mr. President, do we have time for any questions? Now, as is our custom, I would like to present to you,
0: to Mark L. Bradley for gallant service to the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago on March 13, 1998. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now the questions. (laughs)
1: Well, thank you, Brooks. a presentation. You were quite <laughs> our appetite for the battlefield tour. Thank you, Brooks. <laughs> yes? Could you comment on the controversy of the actual surrender between Sherman and Johnson and the uh, terms and
0: all the way up?
1: That's uh, sort of a, therein lies a tale. In fact, that's a story in itself. And uh, I ended up having to write a second book to describe the uh, Sherman-Johnson negotiations. To state it in a nutshell, what made the negotiations at the Bennett Place so unusual, so exceptional, is that General Sherman went way beyond his bounds as a military commander and actually entered into civil negotiations. And in effect, he decided what Reconstruction would be for the South taking that away from the federal government. And that's what caused the firestorm of controversy there at the Bennett Place. Now, we'll go into that in the tour on the final day in a lot more detail. I just don't have enough time right now to hash it all out, but it was one of the most controversial, uh, in in the short span of time it occupied, one of the most controversial events of the war is that uh, agreement that Sherman wrote on April 18, 1865. I will say one more thing, that the uh, stereotype we have as Sherman is this uh, demon, uh, this destroyer of the South, was pretty much shattered by the terms that he offered to the Southerners at the Bennett Place. And it's one of those things that makes history very inconvenient, because the man we call the scourge of the South also happened to be the most uh, conciliatory man from the North. Probably the best friend the Southerners had at that time. Any other questions? Yes, Mark. I wondered about
0: Brad at this battle. He was uh, over Hoke, and in the fact, that he was a division commander and, a, and not just a, a general. Mm-hmm. How come he didn't push it higher there? He could have really pushed Morgan's troops off the field, I think.
1: He probably would have if he had struck he real hell there he would have yeah. Well Bragg didn't write a report on this battle, and none of his subordinates did either. So the only thing I can do is conjecture. I think what Bragg was doing was he was just kind of holding his cards close to his chest until he saw how Hardy's attack on the right, the Army of Tennessee and Tolerance Division developed. And then once he saw that that attack had turned out to be a major breakthrough, then he launched his attack. But he blunted the effectiveness of his assault by waiting that extra hour because it gave Morgan's division that much more time to dig in. What
0: about pulled away? What if he would have been left?
1: Well, if McLaws had been left as part of the striking force, there's no question that the Confederates would have carried the day even further. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that line, though, on the Reddick-Morris farm probably would have held, but it would have been a much closer thing had McLaw's division been part of the striking force. Yeah, it was. Yes? What did Johnson think he could do, assuming that he won the big on the 19th, now he's still got direct wing plus Well. I've said that what Johnston did at Bentonville uh, privately he was thinking that at Bentonville what he could do is either obtain better terms for the southern people or in the, long, uh, in the shorter term he could also buy more time for General Lee and for the eventual concentration of their armies by perhaps crippling Sherman's army here at Bentonville. He told his troops at Bentonville however that he intended to strike Slocum's wing there And then after he crushed Slocum's wing, he would fall upon Howard's wing and defeat it in turn. That's the kind of talk a commander gives to fire up his troops. But that's certainly not what he really believed he could accomplish. The most he hoped to do was buy time for the Confederacy and maybe better terms. Yes? Where
0: were the Confederate cavalry at that
1: time? That's a good question. On March 19, the Confederate cavalry, with the exception of one division, DeBrell's division led by General Hampton, were well away from the battlefield. Butler's division of about 1,000 troopers was uh, harassing uh, Howard's wing in its advance. Wheeler's cavalry, two divisions of Wheeler's cavalry, that is, were north of Mill Creek. And they couldn't even get across the creek until the night of the 19th. And any creek that Joe Wheeler and his best horsemen can't get across, can't be crossed. So, the Confederate cavalry didn't even figure into the fighting at Bentonville except during the early stages on March 19. Yes? Uh, can i ask you a about
0: the mindset of the <clears throat> Confederate commandment. By this time, of the war is pretty clear the Confederates are going down two pretty fast. Mm-hmm. What is prompting the so called intelligence?
1: Instead of just raising the white flag? Well, the the Confederate General-in-Chief was Robert E. Lee. And I think Robert E. Lee uh, was a soldier of the old school. He believed that he could give Jefferson Davis the military picture as he saw it. But he would have to leave Davis to decide what to do with that information. And Lee told Davis repeatedly, I just don't have enough men to hold on to Richmond and Petersburg, even just against Grant. And once Sherman comes into the picture, we can forget it. Um, And he would even suggested to General Grant, why don't we open negotiations, have a convention, see what we can come up with. But he had to leave it up to Jefferson Davis, the civilian leader, to make that decision. And it just wasn't in Jefferson Davis' character to say, I quit, I give up. So, let
0: me ask you, if you just a little beyond that, does there not kind a backlash from the generals
1: themselves? Mm Mm-hmm. You could see this. Mm-hmm. The best quote that I've heard on this is from General Hardy. Uh, Just after the surrender, Hardy was on a train to Greensboro with General Schofield and General Cox. And these uh, two federal generals were overseeing the surrender and disbanding of the Army of Tennessee in Greensboro. And General Hardy told Cox and Schofield that most of us knew the war was lost two years ago, but we were determined to go on fighting as if we expected to win. I, I can't what what I I think the best thing to say is is that this might delve into areas of the southern character that really just go beyond uh, the confines of a campaign study. I think it goes deeper than just strategic decisions. Um so three weeks before
0: the war ended ever met, why not just keep retreating instead of standing
1: and fighting? Why not just keep retreating? You don't have to bring the right well, that's a good point. The way we look at it now, it would make perfect sense because we have a calendar that tells us what's happening. We have a chronology. I, I, I think it was, I but, I know the, the three weeks to go, but surely they knew that it was... The, oh, yeah. It was, it was, it was. Well, as Johnston himself admitted, he knew the best that he could do was obtain fair terms for the Southern people. That's what he thought that he could accomplish by continuing the fight and really given that command assignment it would have been well given the situation it would have been treasonous of him the moment to to accept that command assignment and then say i give up no i didn't say give up i just, make- just simply fall back <coughs> well jefferson davis would have said well that's what he did throughout the war anyway
0: <laughs>
1: there are only two exceptions to that seven pines and Bentonville. Uh, there are some other reasons that uh, I didn't go into in the presentation that I go into in my book as to why Johnston uh, made this attack at Bentonville and this touches on another aspect of southern character which I don't think has been delved into deeply enough uh, other than Grady McWinning's Attack and Die I I wish someone would do a book on southern character and and the concept of chivalry that's part of of it uh, when Johnston received a letter from his old cronies and friend, Louis Wigfall, who was writing from Richmond, on March 14, Wigfall said, it wasn't President Davis who put you in command, it was Robert E. Lee. Lee believes in you. He thinks you're the only man for the job. And this just, it just opened up uh, a whole new world for Johnston, because up to that point, he thought that Lee had forgotten their old friendship at West Point. And one thing military men are, they're sentimentalists. You've got to be a sentimentalist to charge into canister fire. The bottom line is, is that Johnston wrote back to Wigfall just two days later and said, Knight of old never served under his king more faithfully than I'll serve under General Lee.
0: Yes. Doesn't that mean that they had a pretty myopic view of
1: well, again, according to hindsight, yes, they did. But remember what, how it looked to General Grant. General Grant, who seemed to have all the cards right there for, on the table for him, he said the thing he dreaded most of all was waking up one morning, one March morning, and finding out that Lee had escaped to the south and was joining forces with Johnston. And then they would concentrate against Sherman. We have to look at things the way they appeared in late March and early April of 1865, but we can't understand why that war continued. You're absolutely right. Based on what we know now, the closing days of this war are senseless. And for that matter, much of the carnage that took place beforehand. But we have to look at it from the standpoint of the people who were fighting in the war, the people who were making the decisions. That's the only way we can understand what happened here at the close. Yes? i just like to excuse me, add to the discussion on this, and then it's a quality of both the North and Northern officers and Southern officers that we don't talk enough about. Is their conception modern? That's a good point. It's, it's not confined to the South. Yeah, a, uh, a captain of the time would not think it. He could be outnumbered by 10 ships, but he wouldn't surrender until he had fired a broadside to the Ottoman flag. Then I can surrender. Mm-hmm. I have tried to resist. I have done my duties. That's and in our age of compromise, we forget about personal honor. And the personal honor is a palpable thing to men. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons they were still fighting here at the end, was for honor. One of the things that Wade Hampton, uh, the first letter that Wade Hampton wrote home to his sister, he said, we have injured Sherman a good deal at Bentonville, and he can't boast of getting through free. Remember, Hampton lost everything in the burning of Columbia. Two ancestral homes just up in smoke. Just, just about everything was lost except his pride and his honor. And it was at Bentonville where he was able to retrieve some of that. Give it a little bet back to Billy Sherman.
0: We must not forget at the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans asked for surrender and the generals said, nuts. And
1: he in that That's right, McAuliffe. Well, actually, I would almost, when you look at uh, the Battle of the Bulge for the World War II veterans, you almost look at a situation, and we're just talking in purely military terms here. The Confederacy was in the same boat that the Nazis were in during the uh, Arden Offensive. They literally had to rob the cradle and the grave to maintain... To make that last offensive, that last ditch attempt.
0: Yeah, McCall knew that even if he, he gave up on that
1: from even though we were going to win eventually. Yeah. I, uh, but. That was going to change the course of the war. Right. But to, to, to turn it back to uh, what was happening in 1865, though, the yeah. Confederates were reduced to the same desperate measures. Yes. Uh, Well, General Schofield's Army of the Ohio joined forces with Sherman at Goldsboro. And from that point forward, all Johnston did was exactly what you suggested. He just fell back. And he was waiting for the opportunity to join forces with Lee, which of course never happened because Lee surrendered at Appomattox. And Johnston was falling back after that point. But Sherman had 90,000 troops once Schofield joined forces with Sherman at Goldsboro. So that pretty much made it impossible for Johnston to attempt anything more than just delaying actions.
0: Any more questions? Thank you, Mark. Thank you.